Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Jill Weber-Lenz, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Arkansas School of Law, Fayetteville. We will discuss her article, Tort Law's Devaluation of Stillbirth, which will appear in the Nevada Law Journal. So welcome to the podcast, Jill. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I have to begin this podcast by saying, you know, I don't usually cry when I read law review articles, but I cried when, when I read your law review article. And, um, I'm really sorry about what happened to your son, Caleb and, and your loss. So I just wanted to, to let you know that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could start by just explaining to people, um, what, what stillbirth is, um, what causes it and, and how common it is. Um, yeah, I will. I'll give some background to you for why you are apologizing to me, which again, thank you. Um, but my son uh, was stillborn. My son, Caleb, was stillborn, oh gosh, a year and a half ago in June of 2017. Um, so what that personally, um, I was 37 weeks pregnant. So I was two weeks before he was scheduled to be delivered. We were going to induce at 39 weeks because honestly, I was sick of being pregnant. <laughs> um, and exactly two weeks before then, what happened is my placenta decided to detach from my uterus. Um, no warning signs, no medical conditions that made that more likely. Uh, it was completely out of the blue. Um, I also had what was called an invisible placental abruption. So I did not bleed I really wasn't in pain. I was just uncomfortable. And the un- the discomfort wasn't going away. So we went to the hospital. And by the time we got to the hospital, they couldn't find his heartbeat. Um, so I I was told, oh, I don't know how many hours later after we got to the hospital, uh, but I was finally told that, yes, my placenta had detached and he had passed away. And then I was told I also needed to deliver him right away, which you can imagine getting all this news at the same time. Oh, and I also think they told me I couldn't have an epidural, which I also had never done natural childbirth before. So I was like, are you, you know, are you kidding? I, I have to deliver my son who has already passed away and I have to do it naturally. Um, but that is what well, I shouldn't say I did it naturally. Exactly. My doctor came and she drugged me um, and I did give birth to him. And we had, oh, I don't know, probably about six or seven hours that day with him uh, before we eventually said goodbye. Um and had a funeral about a week later. Um, like I said, though, he was stillborn. That is the medical term for, I guess, pregnancy loss. There's two types of pregnancy loss. One is much more common, and that's miscarriage. Um, and miscarriage occurs between, you know, when you're pregnant and um, 20 weeks. 20 weeks is the magic defining line in the United States, at least. Pregnancy loss before 20 weeks is miscarriage. Pregnancy loss after 20 weeks is stillbirth. Um, it's way more common in the United States than anyone seems to understand. Uh, ev- everyone knows about miscarriage, right? And that's what you're so worried about when you're pregnant. And miscarriage is relatively common. I think it's as high as one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. Um, stillbirth, though, is also s- still much more common than we think it is. Um, I've seen differing statistics. I've seen one in 200. I've seen one in 160, one in 100, I think. Um, Those are low numbers. But when you think about how many pregnancies there are in the United States, that's still a whole lot of stillbirths. 
I've seen estimates as high as, I think, 25,000 a year uh, babies are stillborn, um, 24, 25,000. It's about 65 to 70 a day that are stillborn in the United States. So it's way more common than we think it is, although it, it is much less common than miscarriage. Okay. And, and, and this is maybe a hard question, but I think it's really important to understanding the sort of gravamen of your paper. I mean, I was wondering if you could just talk for a little while about how it feels to lose a baby to stillbirth. Oh, oh goodness. I don't think I can answer that in a sentence. Um, you know, it's, it's burying a child. It's losing a child. Um, you know, no, I never got to see him breathe. And I I remember thinking of how, how cool his body was against me, uh, compared to, I have two older daughters and of course their bodies are warm when they come out. Right. I remember Mm. feeling how cool his body was. Um, it's, I mean, it's horrible. It's, it's absolutely awful. I mean, no parent wants to bury a child and no parent should bury a child. Um, you know, luck, I think we were very fortunate. I actually still live in Waco, Texas. I was at Baylor before I came to Arkansas. Um, actually still lived in Waco, Texas when Caleb was born, when he died also. Um, you'll hear me often refer to him just as being born, though, because he was still very much born. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a great support system. There was a great support group down there. Um, you know, we had a public funeral for him, which looking back, I, I, I'm sort of amazed that we did. Um, but I'm so happy that we did because we were, you know, able to celebrate him and able to acknowledge his existence. Because that's something that's really hard in stillbirth is that, you know, people can minimize it because, of course, he died before he was born. Um, or people don't acknowledge it because they think it's less of a big deal because he died before he was born. Uh, but, you know, I can attest. And, and if you look at the studies of other parents, too, like this, you've buried a child. You have buried a child that you had all of these dreams for and that you bonded with, even though he was still in my belly, I've definitely bonded with him. Um, it's, it's the worst thing that a parent can go through and it, it doesn't go away, right? It's been a, a year and a half and, you know, it's still, it's still with us and it's always going to be with us and the grief has changed, um, but it's still there. And I really don't ever expect it to go away, nor do I actually want it to go away because you know, I can tell this sad story, but at the same time, this is how I share Caleb, right? This is how I keep him going. Um, that's, that's my nutshell answer. (laughs) It's all, it's, it's, it's not, it's awful. It's awful. Um, there's, there's no positive in it. And I actually, I can't handle the, you know, the something good will come of it or everything happens for a reason. No, no, no. Right. Like, no, there was, there was no reason this had to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's just, it's really just so horrible and sad and I feel terrible. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that of course like you you never want to happen to anyone else. Right? You never you wouldn't wish this on anyone. Um but it, at the same time it, it teaches you a sense of gratitude and you know, of course I'd rather have Caleb than this newfound sense of gratitude, but um yeah. 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 Well, so I know that stillbirth can be caused by many different factors, but I was wondering if you could, if you could talk about the causation question because it, yeah. 
it does seem like that's really important to sort of part of the argument that you're making in your paper. Yeah, you asked that before too. I apologize that I did not not answer that. not at all. Um, There are many uh, causes of stillbirth. And to be honest, a lot of stillbirths still are um, undetermined. We don't know why they happened which I think is kind of horrifying in 2019 that we haven't really figured that out yet, but that's a, <laughs> that's a side note. Um, you know, uh, it could be a problem with the placenta. Um, my abruption is not actually a very common I, a reason for stillbirth, um, but it could be like, there's something wrong with the placenta, like it's deteriorating, um, I think is a relatively common cause. Um, oh, what else can cause it? I, I, stillbirth is more common if there's multiples, I don't know exactly what it is about the multiple pregnancy that makes stillbirth more common, uh, but it is more common in that situation. Uh, it's more common, you know, once you re- hit that magic age of 35, um, mm. which which is, I guess, the only risk factor that I did actually have. Um, a lot of stillbirths, though, we, we really don't know the reason for it. Um, and even sometimes when we do know the reason, we don't really. Like, I know I had an abruption but no one can explain to me why I had that abruption, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes we know the reasons, but we really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I focused on in the paper, which, you know, we will get to more, but sometimes it, it could be a tortious cause, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very often when an abruption happens, like mine happened, it might be a car accident, right? If someone had hit me in the car in a certain way, it could have messed with my placenta. Um, or you know, it could be medical malpractice. The doctor missed something. Uh, you know, both my husband and I are lawyers and you can bet it didn't take us very long to wonder, should you have seen something doctor? Right. And not actually, not actually with respect to, to my doctor, but the on-call doctor I talked to the night before, right? Like, should she have told me to come in earlier? Mm -hmm. Right. So it could be, it could be an issue with the medical care that's being received. Um, that will vary depending on how advanced medical care is, right? Like how much doctors are really looking out for risks and for symptoms. Um, the one thing I do want to make clear, though, is there's a big perception out there. I, I say that we don't know the reasons for some stillbirths, but there, what's more problematic is there's also a big per- perception out there that stillbirth is just in, unpreventable, right? Like people assume that something was wrong with the baby, so there was nothing to do to prevent the stillbirth. Um, and I think that perception comes from miscarriages, right? Miscarriage, again, is the earlier loss of the baby during pregnancy. And a lot of miscarriages are due to some sort of chromosomal abnormality, right? So there's nothing that can be done. Uh, the research, though, shows globally that any sort of abnormality is, is not a common, not a common reason for stillbirth, not a common cause of stillbirth. Um, so we need to be able to move past this idea that, you know, just throwing up our hands, this is horrible, but we can't do anything because there are things that can be done. The vast majority of stillbirths, the vast, vast, vast majority of stillbirths are not due to any sort of genetic issue, right? There are things that can be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about how tort law has conceptualized stillbirth historically and what kind of remedies really, if any, it's offered for tortious causation of stillbirth? The, the history of tort law, uh, tort law's recognition of stillbirth. Um, 
you may also remember from your, your torts class, however long ago we were in school, right? Um, tort law has always recognized this distinction between physical injuries and what I guess I will call emotional injuries, right? Uh, and it is much harder to get relief for emotional injuries. And that is how courts have, for a very long time, uh, classified stillbirth, right? Um, st- stillbirth, people who, people who had stillbirths were, of course, women. They would come to court claiming they had emotional distress, that they were so distressed such that they lost their unborn child. Miscarriages and stillbirths were very common in claims by women for emotional distress. And those are the same claims that tort law long resisted recognizing at all, right? And eventually did recognize, but tort law has a lot of rules restricting recovery for emotional distress, right? But the very first recognition of stillbirth in tort law was as verification of an emotional injury, right? So it was the hysterical woman who suffered the emotional distress such that she, her child was stillborn. And I, I, I giggle at it because if the distinction was physical versus emotional, I can assure you something very physical happens in stillbirth, right? It's child, it's childbirth, um, so something very physical happens in stillbirth, and yet courts put these claims uh, in the emotional, uh, classified them as emotional instead. So the only claim that existed historically, once courts actually, you know, recognize claims for emotional distress, is you could you could sue somebody for negligence. So if someone acted negligently, you know, causing a car accident, uh, and it caused you emotional distress such that you would lose the baby. Um, you could, you could sue for negligence for that, but the, the damages, the, the injury that was compensated was the emotional distress, not the death of the child, right? That's his, historically, luckily nowadays, um, the vast majority of claims actually, excuse me, the vast majority of states do recognize a wrongful death claim for stillbirth, uh, which is how we treat the death of a living child also. Um, so states have modernized, not all of them by any means, but states do this the right way and recognize the wrongful death claim. Although I still think there's some problems with how states do that wrongful death claim. Um, Uh But luckily, most of the states have moved on. But I guess I should I should point out that um, it's some of the biggest, the most populous states, though, that still do that negligence claim, right? Uh California Uh still does that negligence claim. Florida still does that negligence claim. Uh, Texas Texas has some interesting law on this. Uh, Texas recognizes a wrongful death claim for stillbirth, but only if it was not medical malpractice, right? So if it was a car accident, the wrongful death claim exists for stillbirth in Texas. But if it was med mal, because Texas is a very pro-tort reform state, right? And they need to protect their doctors. If it's med mal, then there's only a negligence claim in Texas. And that distinction matters because damage caps are different and Things matter in Texas. So even though over 40 states recognize the wrongful death claim, which I think they should, uh, there's still a lot of there's still some big states. And the size matters because the more people in that state, the more pregnancies and the more potential for stillbirths. Um, So some of the biggest states actually still do that negligence claim for emotional distress. So I was wondering if you could just to really make the point clear for people, explain why it is that you think or believe that 
the that stillbirth should be a wrongful death claim rather than a negligence claim and also maybe talk a little bit about um the problems that some states still have in terms of how they kind of how they apply the law even in the case of wrongful death claims the wrongful death claim is superior for uh well there's just a couple of practical reasons too but you know wrongful death claim matches parents' experience with stillbirth much better, all right? Uh, luckily, there's some very dedicated researchers out there, you know, who study parents after stillbirth. And so you don't have to just take my, you know, anecdotal evidence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's studies out there that parents consider stillbirth, and it is. I mean, it's the death of their child, yeah. right? And And also, more practically, why would we do a wrongful death claim for that child who survived for three minutes? but not the one who died during birth because stillbirth includes deaths during birth. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some logical issues with not recognizing the wrongful death claim, but the, I mean, the wrongful death claim better recognizes parents' actual experience with stillbirth. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want to minimize anyone's experience. I guess all I want to say is, you know, I, there might be some different, there's always going to be some differences, just in the same way that there's a difference between, you know, losing a child at 12 versus losing a child at two, right? I mean, there, there's going to be also some differences with stillbirth between those two, between those two options. Um, but it's all, it's all burying your child. It's all burying your child. Look, if we're going to have distinctions and damages, that's one thing, but distinction, there shouldn't be a distinction between the claim itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that wrongful death best, you know, best mirrors parents' actual experiences. Um, another very practical reason that a wrongful death claim is a better idea is that it it cleanly gives the father a claim. Mm. Right? The states that still recognize a negligence claim, that's usually only the mom who has a claim. Right? Those states have issues with. Well, can the dad bring the claim to, you know, especially if it was like a med mal, it's the doctor owes the duty to the the woman, not the dad. So can the dad even bring a claim? Mm-hmm. Um, so in short, there's, there's issues with a father, with recognizing, giving father compensation for his emotional distress uh, if his child dies in stillbirth, which again, I have problems with in 2019. Um, wrongful death claim though, very clearly, it's a statutory claim. Right, so it very clearly gives parents a parents a claim, uh, and that would be mom and dad, mm. right? And the cases so far that are problematic with respect to dads, that issue is going to only become more problematic as we have more, you know, non traditional families. Like, how would you do this with surrogates? You know, how would you do this at, at the same sex couple? Mm-hmm. Um, every issue states have had with respect to fathers, that's only going to multiply as we have. Uh, as we have more non-traditional families. So the wrongful death claim is also much cleaner, uh, cleaner recognizing the non-birth parents mm-hmm. um, claim also. Um, I still argue, though, that there's problems with the wrongful death claim. Uh, and my biggest issue with the wrongful death claim, I mean, I understand why states do it, but if you read these cases, they always call the baby a fetus. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, no parent who has experienced stillbirth has ever called their child that they have buried a fetus, right? 
it, it has not happened. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes a difference, right? In the same way that we, we minimize, even, even the phrase pregnancy loss is minimizing, right? Oh, you just lost a pregnancy, not a baby, right? Uh, oh, you lost a fetus, not a baby. You, it, it's problematic to me when we call that baby a fetus. Um, I understand that medically, until a baby is born, that baby is a fetus medically. Although I assure you, I have never been to an ultrasound when I'm pregnant that the technician has said, there's your fetus's foot, right? That, that's not a term we use yeah. uh, for pregnancy, for a desired pregnancy. That's not a term that we use. And it just pains me when I read these court opinions and about these wrongful death claims. And sometimes you even see, you see references to the fetus. So it's not even the parent's fetus, it's the fetus. Um, and that it's, it's minimizing, it's devaluing what the parents lost. They did not bury a fetus. They buried a child, their child, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in the paper, you also talk about how the remedies offered in tort for um, wrongfully caused stillbirth are often inadequate um, and limits are placed on those recoveries that are really un- unjustified. And I think you've, you've kind of talked about this element of it a little bit already, but I mean, it struck me reading the paper that there's there's not only a kind of undercompensation, but this really palpable sense of, it's like insulting the way that the law treats people who've experienced this loss. Yeah, and... and- I shouldn't pick on the law completely because sometimes it's it's culturally uh, culturally we minimize stillbirth too. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that tort law does. But yeah, there's just these sentiments that can then seep into damages. And actually, it's the same one that we were just talking about, right? If a jury was figuring out how many damages, you, how much you should get in damages for the wrongful death of a fetus versus your child, like that's two different numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that culturally we often think, well, sorry about your stillbirth, but you can have another, right? You can have another child. Well, that's another reason that juries, you know, they might see a young family and think, well, you can, you can have another, right? Like you can fix this as if children are replaceable, right? Or they might look at the family and think, well, you have four other kids. I mean, did you really need this fifth one? Right. Um, So there's some, some cultural ideas, and actually, I should point out, those are things we actually guard against with respect to other wrongful death claims, right? Uh, for spouses, right? If the spouse gets remarried, the jury does not hear about that, mm-hmm. right? And there's also no sentiment that you're replacing your spouse. But for some reason, this idea of replaceability just creeps in so often, especially for stillbirth, also for younger children. Um, aside from these cultural things that's, that tort law does not protect against, Another huge problem, though, with damages is it's over 20 states now cap the recovery of damages, non-economic damages, right? Um, I guess I'll go back to my personal situation for a second. If if Caleb's death, if my son's death had been tortious, I could have I could have sued my doctor in Texas, and I would have gotten only two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? There's a there's a cap on non-economic damages for med mal. 
at $250,000, I would not have been able to find an attorney to take a claim for $250,000, right? So legislate, and I should be fair, not every state economic, not every state, not every non-economic cap applies also to wrongful death claims, right? States do this all differently, Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of state non-economic damage caps uh, will severely undercompensate parents after stillbirth, right? Because these are claims where parents have significant non-economic damages and have zero economic damages, right? They're not hurt economically uh, after stillbirth. Um, So they have, they could get full economic damages. They just don't have any. Mm -hmm. The only thing parents have is non-economic damages. And those are more commonly capped these days. Right, right. And it just seems, it just seems so devaluing to the pain that someone experiences to say that, you know, your child's life was worth, you know, $250,000 and that's it no matter what. Yeah. And I I guess I I don't mean to bring up abortion yet. Obviously that's the later latter part of my article that I assume we were going to get to, but that was actually a really interesting debate that just happened here in Arkansas. Uh, We had a non-economic damage cap on the on the um, oh, on the ballot last November for a little bit before the Supreme Court took it off for reasons unrelated to its merits. And you saw distinct factions here in Arkansas. It was actually the pro-life movement that came out and said, no, 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 we can't put a value on life. Like we can't put a cap on this non-economic damage because here the non-economic damage cap would have applied to wrongful death claims. Um so and that was sort of a movement that we haven't seen in other states with respect to their damage caps. Mm-hmm. Um, but stillbirth is one. I mean, there's other cases too. Basically, any case that involves significant non-economic damage and basically nothing in on economic damages. It's it's you know sexual assault cases. Um, mm-hmm. Any case with significant non-economic and non-existent economic. Those cases are really going to be hit by non-economic damage caps. Yeah. 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 And it really, I mean, more than, I mean, it's just what really came across to me reading your paper, especially was just how, how it feel, how it must feel to kind of have the law and the courts and society sort of treat the experience that you've had as kind of so much less than something, you know, like, I don't know how to put it exactly, but it just, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, and some of that, honestly, I can't relate to Brian because we, on, we, we had, we had personally, we had so much support. I mean, I can remember personally only one comment. I got one comment. Uh, I was told I was young and could have another Right, this is the one thing that sticks out to me uh, after Caleb's death, and that was the one, that was it. That was the one comment, and luckily for that guy, I was still so in shock from everything that I didn't punch him. Right, um, so like I, I, you know, I don't, ha- and maybe it's because you know it was 2017. Like we were very supported um, in Waco by Baylor at the time, you know. But I talked to other people, and they don't, you know, different different circumstances, they don't get that same support. Um, and I'll share this story, even though it's not mine. 
Uh, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who I cite over and over in the paper, she's a leading researcher of parents after stillbirth, and she also lost her daughter. Um, uh, to, her daughter was also stillborn. And after her daughter's death, she called to get a birth certificate. And the woman on the phone said, you didn't birth a baby, you birthed a fetus. Right? Just awful, awful. Um, and I, I can't even imagine. And, and, you know, wouldn't you know, Joanne has been a leading force behind getting birth certificates uh, for stillbirth. So I admire her so much and I admire her work. Um, but just there's this network, there's this network, right? Like we, we, we try to find other people who have been through this and the stories, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to hear. And it also then makes me grateful for for our experience and our continued experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you mentioned abortion <laughs> a minute ago, and I think that, that, like you say in your paper, it is kind of the elephant in the room. And a lot of people in the abortion rights movements are concerned about um, sort of increased recognition of stillbirth and uh, as uh, as the death of of a child, and and I was wondering if you could you could talk a little bit about that as you do in your paper about why recognizing stillbirth as a death of a baby is not um, should not be seen as um, as a risk to abortion rights. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, of course, abortion is is such a such a hot topic, right? Um, you know the the fear is is that any sort of recognition of the unborn, right? Any recognition that women actually lost something in stillbirth or in miscarriage, for that matter, um, but especially stillbirth. Well, I need I need to focus on stillbirth here because the the timing matters. Um, but uh, any recognition that you know a woman actually a parents actually lost something in stillbirth is an argument that. It, an argument that that maybe well abortion that also involves the loss of the same thing right so if i buried a child maybe abortion was also killing a child um the the issue comes up most clearly especially with wrongful death claims right which is what the majority of states do now um wrongful death claims they're statutes right and they talk about how you can recover tort damages for the death of a person usually the statutes do say person and what has happened is either state legislatures have amended that statute you know to say person or unborn child or some courts have just interpreted person to include unborn child uh, to cover stillbirth and those wrongful death claims do i should clarify do only cover well it depends on the state the majority of states, though, do only cover stillbirth. Right? The majority of states condition the wrongful death claim on viability, which changes, I don't know, 23, 25 weeks of pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So in the majority of states, the wrongful death claim is only available for stillbirth and only for stillbirths after 23 or 25 weeks, however we're defining viability these days. Uh, so there's this inherent fear that any recognition that parents lost something in stillbirth is also threatening a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have trouble 
with that argument. Uh, it's hard for me to defend. Uh, obviously, I, I answer it in the paper. Um, I just, I don't see what the two have to do with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. First off, there's a timing difference. Um, m- the vast, vast, vast majority, like over 99% of abortions happen in the first 20 weeks. Right. Any abortions happening after 20 weeks, which is the stillbirth time, is usually because, you know, the child is not going to make it. There's some sort of genetic issue or mm-hmm. it's for the mother's health. So the, the timing, uh, the timing is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the interests are so different. Right. When we're talking about wrongful death and stillbirth, we had a state who was interested in that baby's life. Right. Preserving that baby's life. And we had. Um, parents who wanted that baby, right? So the interests were aligned. Um, the interests aren't aligned in abortion, right? Obviously, the, the mother is choosing to, to not continue that pregnancy, whereas the state allegedly has, I shouldn't say allegedly, the state does have that interest in, um, in that unborn baby's life. But when you realize that the interests aren't the same, well, of course, there shouldn't necessarily be any consistency between the two um, because they, there's different interests at stake. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess to, to clean it up, though, I mean, wrongful death is the parent's claim, right? The court even made that clear in Roe v. Wade. It is the parents suing because of their loss, right? Um, there is no comparable, there's nothing comparable to that within abortion, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think what we have here is we have pro-lifers who like the idea of recognizing the claim for stillbirth, who think it somehow feeds their agenda. And because it somehow feeds the pro-life agenda, pro-choicers think they immediately need to need to uh, disagree with it, which in reality, you can do both. You can support a woman's right to choose and also support the fact that th- that women in stillbirth did make that choice. They made the choice to have that baby, and they were tortiously robbed of that choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, sort of long winded, but <laughs> no, no. Thank you. And and kind of in relation to that, to some degree, y- you mentioned in your paper something that I just came across yesterday or the day before in a New York Times article, noting how. Um, some states are criminally charging women for wrongful death when they make a mistake or something happens and the baby dies. And I was just struck by both in that article and in your paper, how, how in some ways it seems like the criminal law recognizes the value of the baby's life more than the tort law seems to in some states. And that, that's an interesting uh, that's another interesting analogy because for years um, we have criminally, uh, we have. A, a rec- <laughs> I'm so not a criminal scholar, so hopefully I won't. Not, I won't mess up these words, right? Um, but whatever the the word is, there's been criminal consequences for uh, causing stillbirth, mm-hmm. right? So whether it was intentional or even possibly ne- maybe the car accident could possibly even have some criminal consequences too. And for decades, the American public has seen those two as consistent, right? We can respect a woman's right to choose and also still recognize criminal consequences for a criminal who deprived a woman of her choice to have that child. Um, You know, those are two different contexts. 
And the American public is fine with those two different contexts. Some might see those as inconsistent, but the American public does not. Right. So if if we we can agree, if the public can agree on that with respect to the criminal consequences versus abortion, then why can't we do it for the for the tort consequences versus abortion? It's just I mean, it's just such a hot topic and and context controls and stillbirth and abortion are just there's such different contexts. I just have trouble with people. I have trouble with this slippery slope argument. Yeah. Well, and one thing that really, that especially struck me about that New York Times article was the way that the criminal law was actually even punishing women yeah. for negligently causing a stillbirth or miscarriage in context where, I mean, it really sounds like from, from my reading of your paper, the, the tort law would actually, in some cases, recognize that harm less fulsomely than the criminal law does with respect to the woman's own relation to her own child. Well, arguably the tort law very much under, you know, devalues that relationship. So um, to otherwise have criminal consequences for it, I, I will admit, Brian, I have not, I have not, I've seen that the New York times has been doing a series. I have not kept up on all of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, it, that's an interesting, uh, you know, in one context, we, we don't even really, recognize that that or we devalue that relationship whereas in another context we're we're punishing punishing for that uh i guess the lack of respect for that relationship yeah it was yeah i don't know so um well jill i mean thank you so much for talking to me about this incredibly important and powerful paper um, and, and I was wondering, you know, in closing, if there's anything I I haven't asked you that I should have, or anything that you'd like to share with with uh, with listeners that you haven't had a chance to share yet. No, I mean, I guess I guess, I, I guess uh, first I do want to apologize. I didn't make you. I didn't mean to make you cry. <laughs> um, you are not the first person who has come back to me though and said. Oh goodness! I, you know, I had to take a walk after this one. I don't usually have to do that after legal scholarship, right? Um, I guess I, 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 I almost just want to make a, a, you know, sort of a public awareness plea, though, is that you know nobody knows about stillbirth, nobody talks about stillbirth. Uh, you'd be amazed at, at the lack of even organization for statistics. Like each state is allowed to define stillbirth differently. So I don't know why we came up with that system. Um, so mm. we don't even have good data on stillbirth. If you don't even have good data on stillbirth, it's really hard to do research on stillbirth. And and we're stuck, you know, and, and parents don't get autopsies. I didn't get an autopsy. And I, I somewhat regret that a little bit. Um, I was certainly never offered it either, though. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I just I don't understand. I don't understand why people don't care a little bit more. Um, and I, I think it's because people just don't know about it and don't know how common it is. And, and it's hard, again, this is sort of a personal thing for me, like, you know, you'll see the uh, pray to end abortion, or, or you'll see, you know, what random state legislature wants to put a memorial to remember all the aborted babies. And it's just like, you know, what about all the women and the parents out there that, wanted these babies. And of course, this is not, they're not all lost to tort by any means, but, but why aren't we also working 
on, you know, some research, some medical research to help the parents who, ch- who choose to have the babies. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that, that's less of a tort issue and more of a, a, a public health plea. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a hard, that's a hard thing for me as a grieving parent that it doesn't get more attention. Um, I'll, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of other parents out there like, like me, but you know, have lost their children for different reasons though, that would also love some attention to their cause. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I just, I, in short, I will just say, I appreciate the, I appreciate any time I get to hear, I get to say Caleb's name and <laughs> I get to hear others say Caleb's name. So I, I love this, the podcast just for that. And I appreciate just the ability to, to share how not only culturally we're devaluing stillbirth, but also, you know, from uh, tort law, tort law is devaluing stillbirth and not really recognizing what parents go through. Yeah. Well, Jill, thanks um, for, for coming on the program. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to talk about Caleb and your experience. Thank you. Thank you.